Hey there, y'all. I'm Cassie. Welcome back to Where the Dogwood Blooms, where I explore the cultural heritage of North Carolina. Today, I'm talking to Nicole Williams, a history doctoral student at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. Her primary focus of study is cultural history, and her dissertation compares the ritual communal violence practices in the North and South Carolina backcountry to those found in Ulster, Ireland. Pull up a chair and sit a spell. We've already been chatting for a little while, so we're just going to dive right in. You're going to have to explain to me the regulator movement. I know it has to do with Governor Tryon, right? And I know that it happened around Orange County, uh, Rowan County, right? Yes. Yes. And what about Mecklenburg County? Was Mecklenburg involved in this? Uh, Mecklenburg was not, well, not directly. Mecklenburg had actually had a little bit of an incident that had happened just a few years prior when the regular movement was kind of starting. And, and that was actually called the Sugar, Sugar Creek War. Long story short, there was land that has, was granted to a, a, a land agent in England. And this was in Mecklenburg and around Mecklenburg County. And Arthur Dobbs, who you may have known, is, is one of the early colonial governors. Absolutely. He's buried in Brunswick Town. He was from Ulster. He was from Northern Ireland. And he's, okay. a, big re- he's a big reason the people that we call the Scots-Irish came into North Carolina. Because he encouraged it. Um, but anyway, Dobbs and this, this other man named George, George Sewin, was granted a bunch of land uh, in North Carolina. And he had hoped that he could attract tenant farmers and extract rents from them. Well, the Scots Irish moved into North Carolina and they settled on his land. They didn't ask for permission. <laughs> they just set on settled on it, thought that guy's in England, what's he going to do? Stop it. Um, <clears throat> long story short, a couple of times there were, or th- there, in, in an effort to survey the land, because you can't tax the land unless you survey the land, the people that he sent survey teams out and found that there were people already living on the land. Now, all the people living on the land, they were not going to allow the survey team to survey the land. On top of that, there were there were little incidents of violence which kicked off from this. And one of these, the people that this involved was a man by the name of Thomas Polk. Thomas Polk was a, I think he was a, like a, a great, great or great, great uncle to later President James Polk. And anyway, Th- Thomas Polk was a bit of a, a hell raver. And um, at one point, when the first survey team went out, Polk went out there and met agents of George Sewin, who I think involved uh, Henry Eustace, uh, who was a land agent, uh, and and met these men on uh, and basically with they were armed with uh, muskets and told them that no surveying would be permitted. Dobbs was actually actually out there with them, and he said uh, that. He was out there to ascertain the lines, the limits, and that was a quote of the tracks that were had been surveyed, and uh, they would not allow it. And then another man seized Governor Dobbs's cane and took his attache into South Carolina because they they weren't sure even where the boundary of North and South Carolina were, and tried to present this guy to the South Carolina authorities, saying that he was trespassing on South Carolina land and causing problems anyway this kind of settled down for a little while and uh this man named eustace mccullough again who is sarah's land agent uh, i think he also owned land there went to try to survey his land and forced the tenant the what he assumed were his tenants to pay rent they said they would pay rent but they weren't going to pay his inflated rent and of course, back then, North Carolina was using something uh, called proclamation money, which were in pound sterling, but not British pound sterling. It was like paper pound sterling because there was very little coinage in North Carolina at the time. But the, the exchange rate between British pound sterling and North Carolina, essentially North Carolina pounds, were not not the same. And uh, at one point, McCullough said, I said, the survey came out there 
to try to survey, and he was met by a group of these men, mostly of Scots Irish heritage. And he was told that he would be tied to the neck and heels and carried over the Yadkin River, and he might make himself happy if he got off alone with that. He continued to try to press the issue. There was there was a bit of a lull. He again tried to survey the land and Thomas Polk, a bunch of these men went out there, blacked out their faces to try to obscure their identities and, and beat some of these men, some of these survey men, including some militia officers, nearly to death. Uh, one of them supposedly was beaten so bad, and this was a quote, they, they damn near let daylight into his soul. Oh, God. <laughs> so this is the the beginning of the regulator movement, right? Well, this is kind of ancillary, but it's connected because one of the people involved in this so-called Sugar Creek War was a Orange County clerk and militia attache named Edmund Fanning. And Edmund Fanning was well known to the regulators because he, he was an Orange County clerk in Hillsborough who also was extracting extravagant, extravagant sums of money from the settlers for ordinary things that they had to go to the county clerk to get, uh, you know, any land that was transferred had to be signed off. Marriages had to be signed off. I think funerals had to be signed off. I mean, there were just fees for everything. And there was allowable fees. But where someone might, and I can't remember the exact amounts, but maybe like a, a normal fee for something might be like a pound. Well, these guys were charging like, well, that'll be 12 and for this makes me wonder, so remember the other night when we talked, um, I was talking about how a lot of people in North Carolina never went and got a marriage bond. They never, and I wonder if this is why, it, part of the reason why. So well, they, it was, they were extorting from them, you know, like I wouldn't go pay for a marriage bond either. It could have been at least during, during the colonial period. But this this became a widespread practice. It was happening in, in, in the Rowan district as well. As a matter of fact, when doing my research, I looked through, um, as early as 1765, there was a man by the name of George Sinners in Granville County, and he made a speech to people around him. This would have been Vance County today, saying that he, they knew that they were being extorted. And for someone who basically had no formal education, uh, George Sim Sims's speech, especially compared to what we listen to today, if they covered public speech, was extraordinarily eloquent, which tell you how far we've fallen today, <laughs> right? Um, but he had said things, you know, that we need we need to resist, but we don't need to resist to the point of we're we're loyal subjects of the crown, and we need that what these people are doing. These county clerks are violating the law, ancient law, ancient constitutions. Which that was things like the Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights of 1783 or 88. Escapes, escapes my mind right now, but um, it's just basically the traditions that had been passed on in England and Scotland. The one thing to understand about how laws worked back then, there was legislative law, but for the most part, people lived in traditional law. If something made sense, it was even if it was informally codified in that tradition repeated again and again and again and again. But Paul said that someone violated quote unquote ancient laws or ancient, ancient constitutions, people were like, you don't have you don't have the authority to do that. You cannot do that. Even even if a official legislator did something legislature did something, people said you cannot do that because that is not consistent with what we have always known to be right and true. And there used to be riots in Great Britain over things like this. In the regulator period, they, they were doing this with impunity. A central figure in this was Edmund Fanning, and he had a counterpart in Rowan County, Thomas Frohawk, who was carrying out similar, or some, some records say it was John Frohawk, some say Thomas Frohawk, who were carrying out similar extortionate practices. Matter of fact, going back to, to Sims, he quote, said that the rights and privileges which our Constitution had endowed us with had been undermined by a common evil which has overrun our land. 
he further proposed that a recovery of our native rights and privileges should be undertaken in an effort to repudiate the tyranny that he found in the province. And he named officers of the county court as central figures in this tyrannical environment that they were living in. Uh, so in, I think it was 1765, a Quaker in the area named uh, Herman Husband, who you may or may not be familiar with. I am. I just read about him. I, I studied up on this a little bit before our discussion. So, okay, keep going. <laughs> he had, he became a principal figure in something called the Sandy Creek Association. The Sandy Creek Association was basically an official group of people that had gotten together to oppose these extortionate practices. And uh, the county clerk basically had labeled this association an insurrection. And it really wasn't an insurrection. It was something to try to bring some remedy to this. Anyway, at some point, the Sandy Creek Association had become, it was dissolved because there were so many threats against people uh, in it. And obviously, people wanted these practices to stop, but they did not want their, um, they didn't want to become enemies of the state. They really were very insistent. We're still loyal to the kings. We're even loyal to the governor. But the, the governor and the king don't know what's going on back here in the back country. I mean, you think about how long it takes to drive across North Carolina today. Think about how long it would take in a mudded, rutted road that you might have a cart and a horse. How long it would take to get from Wellington to Hillsborough. Right. <laughs> that would be like trying to drive from Wilmington to Los Angeles. <laughs> but anyway, there were several petitions that were drawn up. And they were essentially ignored. And eventually this, this turned into a, um, this group called the Regulators were, were formed. And they took their name from, their, the phrase was, they were for regulating public grievances and abuses of power. And that they would seek redress from the Burgesses, Investorymen, as well as the General Assembly, the Governor, the Council, the King, and Parliament. And at one point, uh, I mean, one of the early incidents that happened happened in April 1768. A local sheriff, only known to history as Hawkins, seized a horse from a regulator who was en route to Hillsborough because he was trying to pay uh, his taxes. Apparently, tax man had come and he had not been able to pay. So he was like, well, I'll go to the county court and pay my taxes. They took the man's horse. Which, as you can imagine, taking a horse was meant you could no longer travel, and you were also going to be greatly inhibited from being able to work your land, which meant you'd have to starve to death. Um, this generated a little bit of a response, and another group of regulars caught up with Hawkins. Uh, actually, it was approximately 60 or 70 persons farmed with clubs, staves, and cloven muskets and forcibly took the horse from Hawkins. They proceeded to tie up the sheriff, placed him on the horse, and entered Hillsborough in an informal procession and abused other individuals that were at present that day. Uh, according to Edmund Fanning, who saw this, uh, fired bullets were fired at his house, breaking his windows. Uh, this, that, that kind of um, tradition was meant to show contempt for Fanning and saying, you know, we know what you did. We know that you're behind this and we're not going to put up with it. Anyway, there were uh, there were other incidents that, that really kind of went on through this. Uh, Governor Tryon, eventually, he was very soft in his response to the regulators. He kept thinking this is going to resolve itself. But he also was seemingly unwilling to clamp down on Fanning. So Dobbs died, right? Dobbs died in um, Brunswick yeah. Town. Yeah, Dobbs was already basically an old man by the time he was in North Carolina. Right. So then he's replaced by Tryon, correct? I, if I remember, I don't think there was, I think it went directly from Dobbs to Tryon. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. I need, trying to keep up here. All right. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there were, uh, there were several songs that actually were written around this time uh, to mock or to, to venerate the regulators and to mock Fanny and uh, Frohawk. Uh, 
Uh, one was, and these were published actually in 1826, honoring the 50 years since the uh, declaration was signed in a Raleigh newspaper. But one was called From Hillsborough Town on the 1st of May. Uh, called the local officials murdering traitors who want to oppose the honest men that were called the regulators. They attacked Sanding by name and mocked his militia force as brave boys. Uh, these were almost probably precursors of what you would think of as old backwood folk tunes. Again, this tradition comes from Scotland, England, and what, what is now Northern Ireland. And you can easily, these were, I think at one point, uh, one man recalls people singing one of these songs at a North Carolina wedding. But at one point there was uh, Tryon, Tryon, and I can't remember the order, but Tryon marched, or he, he went around North Carolina to try to muster the militia to try to force the issue in Hillsborough. But he had trouble even mustering up the militia because a lot of people in the backcountry did not want to muster up against their neighbors. And the only way he could get people to muster was to basically provide them with free whiskey. So you can get the militia together, here's some rum or whiskey or whatever, and people would basically just drink themselves with stupor, and the next day they wouldn't actually show up to leave town. Uh, there was a riot around the same period. I want to say it was 1769 in, uh, in Hillsborough, which at one point the standing was attacked. Actually, there was another attorney, officer attorney named John Williams, who was beaten up by the regulators. They attacked Fanning, drug him down the steps, beating his head against um, the stones on the ground. I'm surprised they didn't kill the guy. And basically chased him out of town. The judge, who was, his name was Judge Henderson, he got up trying to stop the regulators. And they told him, you sit down there, you shut up, or we'll do the same thing to you. So he sat down, and he didn't say another word. And they proceeded to, when they, they pulled down Fanning's house that night, pulled a church bell that Fanning had given to a local church, pulled that out of the church. They ransacked Fanning's house, drank all his whiskey, threw his furniture into the street, set his house on fire. And at some point later, they also burned Judge Henderson's house to the ground. And another big feature, by the way, around this time was the practice of uh, whipping, whipping people. If people irritated you, the regulators with impunity would take people out of their home and whip them as punishment. Now, th this is like a Southern version. You've obviously heard of tarring and feathering people, which was used quite extensively in New England. Absolutely. Well, the, the thing in the South was to whip people. If people, if people transgressed some sort of moral norm or angered the community, it was not unusual to get them, tie them up to something, and, and whip them. Not whip them to death, but it whipped them enough to where you're like, well, I'm not going to be able to sit down for a long time. Right. Uh, I think one of the quotes was, and this was referring to the regulator, this was actually from a Moravian record. I said, people in their rage sometimes caught them and married them to a blackjack, that is, tied them up to a blackjack with their arms around it, gave them a good sound dressing, and laughed to see them hug their bride while undergoing the operation. Ouch. So you can think, think in the back of your mind, a lot of these people that were participating in this, they're descendants of people that like in Western Appalachian now. <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds very much like things that my people probably would have got into. <laughs> And this, 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 this kind of back and forth, I think at one point, one scholar said there probably wasn't a member of kind of the informal upper-class gentry in the interior of North Carolina who had not been whipped at one point or another. So this is an extremely widespread practice. And at one point, Herman Hudson was elected to the General Assembly, but, and he was also tried repeatedly, but then the, the jury, for one reason or another, because I think people... There was a sense, even if they were technically violating the law, that the regulators were upholding the ancient law. And so there was no reason for them to, like the regulators were wrong, but they were right. And these practices, by the way, just for the record, are known as rough music. Uh, rough music in a broad scheme is a term that comes from England. 
Uh, there are other words for it. Sharabari is one. Skimmington is one. Riding the Stang is one. Americans or people in the South might actually know the equivalent term, which is riding someone out of town on a rail. And as we brought up the other day, in the 19th century, it became known as the lynch law. People connect lynching with hanging. Lynching doesn't necessarily mean hanging. It's just like a form of what people thought of as extrajudicial justice. And it is an ancient practice that was most widely practiced in the British Isles and in northern France. So basically, this was the regular people's way of keeping the elites in line. It was it was a way of keeping elites in line, and it was also used to keep uh, people who committed committed moral transgressions. It was not unusual in in the Carolinas for you know if somebody was known to have been having an affair on their wife or her husband for someone to be punished in this manner. And and don't get me wrong, these people were not traditionally what you would think of as Puritans. These people had danced, they drank, they had a good time, but there were certain things you just did not do. Right. So I, I, I'm I'm thinking of like my hillbilly culture here. Um, you know, there was there's a lot of fighting um, in Western North Carolina, or, or there was when I was a kid. Um, you know, people weren't afraid if someone if someone crossed you to you know black their eyes. Like that was that was acceptable behavior. So that's kind of what I'm getting from this is that you know there were these people cheating. The commoners and the commoners rose up and were like, no, you're not, that's, that's not right. And we're not going to take it. Essentially, yes. But the, <clears throat> there was a bit of a, a dance going on between Tryon and the regulators. Like they really did not want to come to direct confrontation with each other, but they really did want Fanning dealt with. And the more Fanning was allowed to run roughshod, the matter they got. I think even at one point, the regulators marched on Newburn, and they were going to burn Newburn to the ground. Now, that's where Tryon Palace is at, correct? Correct. Okay. Did they actually do anything to Tryon Palace? I know there was a big stink over that building being erected between the West Coast and the East Coast. There was a big stink about that. Uh... It was as big of a stink as you would think, but I think that there was a feeling that, you know, you try to extract money out of people and you're, you're building, you're building this governor's palace back there. But the, as you, if you've seen it, it doesn't look, it's less opulent than what you'd see at Williamsburg during the same time frame. I have, so I have, I went when I was a little girl, um, and I haven't been since, and it's on my list. Like it's going to happen in the next year or so. I'm going to, me and the girls are going to go see it. To Williamsburg? No, we went to Williamsburg last year. No, to um, see Tron Wallace. They've yeah, they've never seen it before. I've never, I've never even been to Newburn. The only time I can claim to have gone to East North Carolina is actually the time I went to Wilmington. I mean, East North Carolina is like a farmland. <laughs> well, come visit me whenever you come back to America. Come visit me, and I will show you around Eastern North Carolina. You'll fall in love. It's a, it's beautiful. I just remember driving to Wilmington and thinking. Brand really flat. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's really flat, but it's it's unique. It's different, you know. Like in um, Blayton County, we have uh, what are they called? The Carolina Bays, and then um, Wilmington. The whole coast is surrounded by swampland, and you know, I'm of course I'm in love with it. I've spent over half my life here, so you know, it's actually funny you bring up Blayton County. And I, I won't go too deeply into it. Blayton County was a site of a lot of. Uh, atrocity during the Revolutionary War. Yes, it was. I have actually been researching it. I went to Purdy Hall. I just told you this. I went to Purdy Hall, and I'm trying to find information on it right now for a blog post, and I haven't been able to find a whole lot, but I know that um, the courthouse around there burned down several times, and, you know, so I may have a hard time finding more than what I've already found, but we'll see. But there was there was, uh, there was was an incident which was reminiscent of someone of the regulators, but it was in the courthouse where a South Irish attorney, who was well-known, uh, named uh, Archibald McLean, was beaten quite badly by a Revolutionary uh, War veteran named Robert Rowan. And he pulled out a sword on McLean and tried to kill him. And then he tried to kill the clerk of court. And then at one point, 
that night there was an episode of Rough Music where they had taken McLean into a nearby house owned by a Mr. Uh, Fitz or Kirkpatrick, and they paraded around and basically were trying to, you know, say, we want McLean out of this town. We're going to burn your house to the ground. You know, we were rough. We were rough in North Carolina way back when. <laughs> you you drive around. I mean, Bernie, because it's, you drive around North Carolina, you're like, oh, look, it's a Walmart. It's a Dollar General. And it really kind of obscures this history, this very real history that happened there. And that the history of that state is very much tied to, as I've said, English, Scots, Irish, and African tradition that are ancient. These are ancient traditions, but we've wallpapered over so much of this stuff. I mean, there's there's dark, there is a violent darkness there, but at some point, it's kind of in some way in retrospect. Again, we didn't have to experience it. It's almost like a dark humor. And oh yeah, it's almost romanticized. If if again, it's highly fictionalized. I have my problems with it. But if you've ever seen the TV show Outlander, I haven't. You were the second person and the second person on the podcast to bring up Outlander. I'm gonna have to read it or watch it to catch up. So they have they have Wilmington. Wilmington's in there, and so is Western North Carolina, even though it's actually Belden Scott. They built fake Wilmington in there. Oh, that's awesome! But then you know they go in, they go into some of some of, the, some of this stuff. They the the story is fictionalized, and some some of it's a little bit ridiculous. But the the basic premise of these events did happen. Um, you brought up the Walmart thing, and you know what's crazy about that is is you know I'm I'm 41, and so I remember very clearly the 80s and early 90s, and and this new thing with the strip malls and the Walmarts, and and that's kind of when it got started when I was a kid. But I remember a time when that wasn't the case, when you know um, we were a lot more tied to our roots than we are today. Um, and I can see that. I can see where the more that gets built up, it's like the more it paves over what used to be. Well, the problem is, is people have to see something tangible. Um, in order to fall in love with their history and culture. I, I, I Fortunately, it has not happened to me yet. But sometimes I go looking for an ancestor's house, and I, I fear one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be tracking it down, and I'm going to look up, and I'm going to be standing in the frozen foods at Walmart. But, you know, you, again, you read this stuff. You know, when I was talking about that riot a minute ago in, in the regulator uh, where they pulled Fanning's house down, uh, you know, just reading reading my research here, they say the rioters entered Fanning's house, proceeded to draw, destroy its contents, including all furniture, china, and glass. They seized Fanning's currency, raided his liquor and wine cellar, and threw what they could not consume into the street. The ma- regulator mob also took Fanning's wardrobe, fashioned an effigy, paraded it throughout the town of Hillsborough. And then they pulled his house down. And then in one final act, and this was according to the Virginia Gazette, the mob took the corpse of a man who had been executed some time ago, placed him at the lawyer's bar in the courtroom, and filled the judge's seat with human excrement. <laughs> so they were definitely going to get their point across. <laughs> well, you know, again, coming, there was another, there was another case, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, I think it was shortly after the revolution. There was a Presbyterian minister, his name on tip of my tongue because I read about him so many times, but I haven't. In, but he he was very kind of far and brimstone, and I want to say this was further out into the Piedmont, headed toward toward the mountains. And you know, a lot of the stuff Irish people were like ethnically Presbyterian. That doesn't mean that they were like dour, that they everyone was like this dour black clad, like nobody have any fun. Anyway, they got sick and tired of his fire and brimstone stuff. So they went into his church one day and overturned all the pews and, and smeared the entire church in the pig's blood. Because that was a way of telling this guy, don't tell us what this. <laughs> and again, you really think about the kind of people that did this. These were people who were probably, by and large, these were, for the most part, most part, these were not grown men like we think of today. These were like 18, 19, 20-year-old men 
who, you know, in that time, that was considered to be a grown man, but you have all that energy and testosterone and like, nobody tells me what to do. You know, these are the people that got involved and like, I'm going to gouge your eyes. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a, rebe a rebellious spirit. There has always been a heavy, rebellious spirit in North Carolina. I've witnessed it my whole life. I'm, I'm very much that way. I'm very rebellious. Um, my family is very rebellious. My husband, you know, and listening to you, I can very easily see where it comes from. It, it can be useful. It can be disruptive, but you don't want to have a country full of compliant people because you don't, you, no one tells me what to do. It, it can be counterproductive, but like I said, you don't want to become so compliant that you just do everything that authority figures tell you to do because you have to have that pushback. It keeps the entire system honest. Right. It provides, you know, it's checks and balances for, for regular people, or at least that's what it was. Well, it's what it should be. It's it's just like I said, we we a lot of the people that move into places like North Carolina, they don't see ancient culture which was transplanted into North Carolina. We've wallpapered over it with this kind of culture of materialism. And materialism is fine up to a point, but it cannot be the be all and end all of everything that Look, you are. It's not sustaining. It it doesn't connect you to your family it doesn't connect you to your neighbors and to your community and so it's 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 not lasting but you know the real roots the real history the real culture that's what ties us together well i read something the other day i mean um if you have hardship in your society culture and community and history and tradition was what will get you through that if you're used to just looking at your iphone and getting takeout food and all of a sudden, your iPhone doesn't work, and the takeout company is not delivering anything. You're going to feel like crap lost. It's not. Oh, yeah, really. So you have to have these kind of intangible things. And my message to pretty much anybody and everybody is: I see a lot of Americans who come to Europe, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they'll say, "Well, I wanted to experience history and culture, and tradition." Well, you had that in your country. You threw it away. Now, it doesn't mean you can't you can't fix it, but you have to be willing. You can't be so self-deprecating about your... You cannot just say, I'm going to leave where I'm from and go somewhere else. When it, you have almost a moral duty to try to protect and give rebirth to a real common folk culture, because you need to have people. Your Your people are the people that you grew up with. And if you're new and you create community, you create those people and it built their trust and it built their repetition. You know people, you get to know farmers, you know the guy that runs a general store, um, you, you wave at people, you go to church, you go to town meeting, all that stuff, it, it all snowballs over a, over a period of time. You know, like people say, well, like, we have no culture in the United States. Well, if you've ever watched, I originally, originally been graduated, but I went to the University of Georgia. And there are videos of the band playing like drumline before the football game. And I think a lot of big schools do that. And you'll see all these people lined up to listen to the drumline. That is culture. Because the same thing happens year after year after year after year. And people say, well, that's, that's football. That's not, it is culture. You're so close to it, you can't see it. You look at things that are foreign to you and you go, wow, that's so exotic and cool. That's actual culture. You have culture. You just need to venerate it a little bit more and make it a little bit more visible. It's there. Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with this because this is this is literally why I started my blog. It's it's why I started this podcast is because it's almost like people are completely blinded to all the culture and the history that is around them here in my own home state i can't i mean and i imagine it's worse in other states but here i can see people just kind of glossing it over or it's no big deal because it's right next door well no it is a big deal and you should know about it and we should talk about it because it's you know it's what links us together i mean you have to know these things otherwise what is there to make us care about one each one another well it's the same thing as we were talking about uh earlier with with accents i mean your accent signifies culture i've never been out there but i've seen these videos 
and my understanding is it's disappearing like everything else the high tire accent on the outer banks it, it, these people sound almost like some kind of like proto-british accent oh yeah there, there haven't been a lot of people going in and out of the community so they've maintained something that's a little bit closer to maybe the way their ancestors spoke yes north carolina is the most linguistically diverse state in the entire united states and so we have more little pockets of different accents across our state than you can find um in any other state in the union and those things are dying out like the appalachian accent when i went to boone i was shocked because i expected I mean, I'm from Haywood County. So when I go home to the mountains, you know, everybody talks the same. And when I went to Boone, that wasn't the case. I didn't hear a single Appalachian accent. I even remarked about it when we went into a gas station and the kid who was working there, um, you know, he was going to school at App State. And he he basically told me, well, that's because Appalachian accent doesn't exist. And I wanted to stand there and school him, but I was like, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to start an argument with a poor little kid at the gas station, but it ended up pulled up your horse whip and gave him a regular. <laughs> but it bothered me. I mean, because he genuinely believed it, that there was no Appalachian accent, that there's just a Southern accent. Well, no, that's not true. You're showing your ignorance and, and your inexperience by even saying that there is definitely an Appalachian accent, just like there's a different accent in, in Wilmington than there is up in the Outer Banks. Or in Fayetteville, uh, the people here have a different accent than the people in Wilmington and, and the Outer Banks do. But if you don't spend time traveling around North Carolina and getting to know regular people, you would never know that. Well, the, the thing about uh, just accents and tradition and culture, it it requires... See, the problem is, and again, I'm from Georgia, even though my father's from North Carolina, and I've lived in North Carolina, and... We cannot fall into the trap. I mean, our governors and state legislators think that making the state is just like attracting big business to the state. And that's the way to erase your state culture. You cannot just attract business. You have to, if you want to really give your state some real vibrancy, it's to encourage people to be entrepreneurs and, 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 and sell services and goods to one another in the state, in the community, and not just work for some company that probably doesn't really care about you, it's gonna throw you out anyway. Well, not only that, but they're gonna bring in a whole group of people who are gonna come here for money, and they don't they don't care about local culture. They, you know what I mean? They they're bringing their own with them, and then that kind of dilutes what we already have here even further. Well, some of this has resulted, I think, in the domestication of, I think people have become domesticated. The stuff that we, again, not really being political per se, but the stuff that we put up with today, like our ancestors would have not tolerated stuff at right. all, because that's just, that's not the culture they came out of. And that doesn't mean these people lived in like 24-7 violence. I mean, these people went to church, they cared about each other, they mourned when they're family members or friends died who, who experienced very real, probably more meaningful lives in a lot of ways than people did today. Uh, but we we really kind of lost, lost something. And you, know, you talk about um, this, this regulator, the violence. And people would say, you know, somebody uh, educated would go, oh, Southerners, they're just so violent people. Again, this is a tradition. This is a British tradition that came to America. This was bought to America in a lot of the, the foundational cultures that made the country what it could be were not invented in the United States. They were invented in Western Europe. Right. So how did the how did the regulator movement end? So you, you said that they, you know, they they captured. Well, they whipped Fanning, right? But they whipped Fanning, abused Fanning, ran him out of town. They burned Judge Henderson's house. Basically went, went on a campaign of abuse and whipping of people that were trying to maintain this corrupt system. Uh, it did end, as some of your listeners probably know, the Battle of Alamance. You know, I've heard of the Battle of Alamance, and up until I was 
I did because I did a little research on this before we talked because I didn't want to sound like a complete idiot because this isn't, you know, this isn't one of the things I know so much about. But I always thought that that was a Revolutionary War battle. I had no idea that it wasn't. Yeah, and some people, there's some monuments there that try to connect it to the revolution. It's not really connected to the revolution because a lot of, not all, but a lot of the regulators were Tory loyalists during the revolution. People had a lot of, people did genuinely have affection for the king. And obviously were good people. Uh, I have one of my ancestors in northern, central North Carolina was a Tory, Tory loyalist. Um, but having said that, it, it was a, it wasn't a, a, it was a rebellion against a sin or it wasn't against Tryon, but a de facto wound up being against Tryon because he refused to deal with Fanning. It seemed like things would go against Fanning and then Fanning would go to the governor and was like, you know me, I'm a good person. Everyone vouches for me. But the problem is you get all these people who were also benefiting from the corrupt system. They're going Oh yeah, Fanning's a great guy. I don't know why there's some bad at him. And trying to, again, we don't have radios or TV. He only knows what he's told. So he's like, well, obviously these regulators are crazy. Because this guy looks like an upstanding citizen to me. <laughs> but yeah, the regulator movement was essentially put, put down at the ballot element. Because it, it's one thing to get to take on small groups of people but when you have an outfitted militia which is uniformed uh, like British regulars and trained to muster that's going to be very hard for your average backcountry farmer they're not outfitted for that sort of combat so was this kind of an early the sentiments that they held was this kind of an early signal of what was to come with the revolution I won't say, I don't, in the broadest sense, no. Maybe in a small sense, yes. But having just gone through a lot of what happened in North Carolina and the revolution, a lot of the people that lived in the back country when the revolution broke out just wanted to be left alone. They did not want to take part in the war at all. All the reason a lot of these people took part in the war is because it cued their doorstep. The people who, the people who most ardently or wanted the war to come more than anything were, were black people that lived in Wilmington, right? Merchants um, who felt that they were being squeezed by taxes on goods. There was a lot of resentment in the back country, even among regulators, of like, why would I fight for these guys? These guys are rich, and they're living they're living very different lives than the people in the back country were. I mean, the people in the back country were, you know, they were growing foodstuffs, they were growing, or they had livestock, whereas the people in Wilmington were like, oh, my ship's in it. I just got, like, a huge shipment of tea and iron and, you know, maybe feather pillows. You know, things, staples that you could sell to other people. The people just felt like they were being taken advantage of. There was a real movement among the early revolutionary government to try to get the regulators on their side, the former regulators. But there was, there was a reluctance to get involved up until they absolutely had to. You can even see this later during, um, and I won't get too deep into it, but people think about the Whiskey Rebellion after the war. The Whiskey Rebellion happened in North Carolina as well. There were riots in the backcountry because people were not going to pay taxes on their, their distilled whiskey. They even... Alexander Hamilton wrote Washington. He said, I can't get my tax agents back there because they're actually being like whipped and abused. I can't. I can't. They won't collect the taxes because they're too afraid to. It was the same spirit. Yeah. yeah don't, I can, don't tell I mean, me I, what to do. Exactly. I can kind of, I can definitely see a, a whiskey rebellion, especially in North Carolina, because I know um, historically speaking, um, drinking has always been a big deal in North Carolina. Um, distilling whiskey and and moonshine in western north carolina you know these things are a a huge part of our culture and so i can see that people would lose their minds um when out of nowhere you're trying to regulate or tax it but the funny thing is you know when when that tax came in they were collecting taxes just fine around wilmington and new Bern. and well yeah those people had the money to pay that well you know but the people the people in the back country 
whether or not they had money to pay it, they didn't want to pay it because they just resented the fact that you're even trying to get me to pay it. I can see that. Dude, what authority? Why did we just fight a war and you're taxing me the way the British government was just taxing me? This seems somewhat unjust. Well, I, I know a lot of people who feel that way today. I mean, it seems like you're paying a tax every time you turn around, you know. It, it gets frustrating. And I, I can see, you know, if you're fighting a war where you don't want to pay taxes to some, you know, foreign monarchy, the people right after that are going to feel that way about their local local government, too. But again, the thing I, I try to, like, these the resistance, like the regulator tunes were bought out of, like, Scott Tower's broadsides, which British Isles. People, these are like ancient things that we still kind of live in the footprint of these things. Like if you're in North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina, there's still like the little footprint of these old ancient ways. You know, like country music, especially kind of like non-big label country music is still the footprint. Bluegrass music. people getting, Like traditional Appalachian music. Yeah, and pe people getting into fight or the spirit of resistance to government, you know, whether or not people like Trump, people will just put a Trump vibe on their, on their house because don't tell me what to do. They like, I don't even like Trump. They'll be like, I'll put a Trump flag on my house just because nobody tells me what anchor did. I, yeah, no, I know plenty of people like that. We actually just had a discussion on uh, Twitter. Well, not you and I, but I posted, you know, um, about rednecks and um because i saw the definition and when i think of a redneck that this is who i associate them with people like the regulators they're people who don't get into politics they don't like government they're you know what i mean they're kind of don't tell me what to do that's kind of the attitude among at least rednecks in north carolina anyway there was a meme and you know i even kind of I even fell into it uh, during COVID lockdown. It was like a little, the meme with a picture of a penguin with its arms folded, had an angry face. And it said, I don't usually go out, but now that you're telling me not to do it, I want to go out. That was me. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> don't tell me what I can or cannot do. Because, but like I said, this, this, besides the fact that I think it's a healthy spirit to have, it is the one thing that sets. It's the Carolinas and Georgia and probably Eastern Tennessee, Southwestern Virginia. It makes that region distinct. I mean, I don't see that as a bad thing. It, it kind of it bothers me and hurts my feelings that people kind of look at it that way, like out, outside perspective, see it that way. And to me, it's more like, um, you know, we we take pride in our freedom and, and we're willing to pursue it. And, and that's not just today, but historically speaking, it has always been that way. And and when you look at the regulator movement, you can see that. That is a spirit that has continued to live on here in North Carolina. I mean, we may not be dragging people through the streets or whipping them anymore, but it's still kind of, you know, you can see it. Like when I went to Western North Carolina with COVID um, hit, you know, all in the Piedmont, everywhere you went, people were wearing masks. They were standing six foot feet back. They're, um, you know, I believe at one point we had a um, a curfew here in Fayetteville. Um, but when I went home to the mountains, there were no masks. If I walked into a gas station and, and bumped into somebody that I had known for years and they walked right up to me and hugged my neck like it was no big deal. And I was like, wow, you know, like and people there were like, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. But I think we ought to turn, we ought to turn this into, we really need to not just, we need to venerate our culture and history. Like there needs to be more classical monument to this. I mean, the one thing that you do is you create works of beauty through your buildings and your public art to promote these things as virtues. But it can't be, you can't wait for outsiders to do it. You know, it has, this has to come from local people. Uh, you know, it's the one thing, like, I've always been kind of a little bit appalled. I know people love Walmart, especially in remote, remote communities. The problem with Walmart is they build the mass structure. And if Walmart ever closes or moves, that mass structure is just a blight on the area. The people in the area need to be like, 
look, this is a special area. If you're going to open here, you're going to open something that looks really beautiful. Beautiful and classically designed. And that way, if you abandon that building for some reason, we can continue to reuse that building for the next 100, 200 years. I love that. I, I wish that. I, I see it all the time. And here's something else I talked about on the blog recently is is uh, tobacco in North Carolina. And, you know, tobacco farming is, is nosediving quickly because people have, you know, given up smoking. And, and that's great. But when I drive through... Like I have to go to Raleigh at least once a year because I have tachycardia and I have to go see my cardiologist. And the last time I went, it hit me that what used to be these big, gorgeous tobacco fields with big, beautiful barns and tobacco barns and, you know, this kind of thing have now been replaced with these um, apartment buildings and these um, subdivisions that don't look like they belong in North Carolina. You know, I passed one apartment building that looked like something from the Jetsons. It just didn't fit. And I thought, why would they build that here when they could have built something that was reminiscent of our culture here in North Carolina? Because you, you, they, get, out, you get outsiders come in and they just, they're going to build whatever is cheapest and they're going to walk away from it because if it falls down 30 years, who cares? I've already made my money. Right. But I care. And and I know I'm not the only one who cares. Lots of people care. And I feel like what you just said was perfect. That's what there should be laws that say, hey, look, you know, we want you to come here, but we want you to come here and make sure that whatever you put up is lasting. And it fits here. It matches and goes with everything. And, and you know, but they're not doing that. So that's a great idea. I hope that somebody is listening to this who can make something that happen. Well, there was a, there was a, I don't recall her seeing it myself, but there was a country store. This is a couple of years ago in Mecklenburg, probably on the outskirts of Charlotte. And it was like 120 plus years old. But again, the developer bought it and they said, oh, we're going to tear it down. And yeah, half the population was like, okay, yay, progress. Oh, I remember driving by uh, in through Charlotte, and people in Charlotte will know what I'm talking about. There is a massive, it's near Lake Norman, there's a massive strip mall that's called like Consumer Square. It's literally called Consumer Square. I'm like, you couldn't come up with a better name. You're basically just buy stuff here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to think about, and it is, tw- it's, it's the anniversary of American independence comes up in 2026, really being serious think about who we are as as a people and start creating the type of world that we want to live in locally and stop letting people come in and dictate to us you know again take that regular spirit don't put up with what you're given and be willing to you know maybe be willing to forego Maybe I don't need an iPhone 15 Pro Max. Maybe I should spend a little bit more time yelling at local city officials to try to sway things to make my community better. Because that's oh yeah, it it all starts locally, and and it bothers me. Um, I'm over the past couple of years, I've had this major shift and change where you know national politics was really really bothering me and it was like it was all anybody talked about and it's still happening today it's all anyone's talking about and I'm like what about your local communities are you this passionate about what's going on in your town or your city or your county are you instead of being on Twitter are you going down to your city council and are you telling them hey I don't want this this historic building torn down are you telling them hey I don't want this halfway house built here like we need to be looking out for our own and making sure that our children are safe and that this is a safe place for, you know, our elderly parents to live and, and for us to raise our, our family and to stay in this community and, you know, where our families have lived for generations. That's what we want. And I just don't think people are doing that. I think instead they're going on Twitter and they're they're fussing about who's president or, or you know, whatever is going on. Um, in some yep. distant place instead of worrying about what's happening in their own backyard. While, yeah, while the president is important, the people in your local and state community 
they are the people that really impact your life. Most people cannot tell you who's on their city council. They can't tell you who the mayor is. They certainly can't tell you who their state representatives are. And that's why there's really bad. I've worked in state, or I've worked in municipal government. They're terrible because you get these specific activists who who run for these positions, especially in places where you're attracting all the outsiders. And like locals are like, well, I'm, I'm going to more worry about you know Trump versus Biden or something. You need to really worry about the people who decide where your trash is going to get picked up or what kind of development let in next door. People also need to like promote promote the arts, promote local culture, promote local people, promote local businesses. Because whatever this thing is that we live in, it's not going to continue indefinitely. I get so. Over, I've blogged for a very long time. The blog that I'm writing now is is relatively new. I've been doing it for about three years now, mm-hmm. and. Part of the reason that I started it was because there's all of these influencers who are from North Carolina, and, and that's great, and more power to them. But it bothered me to get online and and try to read something about North Carolina, and instead of promoting businesses that have been in the area for 60, 70 years, they're promoting these people who've come down here from wherever you know new york up from florida over from california there are these brand new businesses they're and ignoring you know local legends how do you do that how do you come in and instead of promoting places where actual north carolinians go you're promoting this new fad that's in town and that bothers me and i'm not saying that no one should go to the you know, the fat, the new fad restaurant and try their new drink or, you know, their new food or whatever. But I'm saying you should be saying, hey, look, here's this family who has been running this business for 70 years and they've been drawing in a crowd. Come here and taste this food. You know, like those are the things that that I wanted to promote, the places that I actually go to, the the things that actually interest me instead of just trying to be this big cash grab. And that's what I look at a lot of them as being, and, and that offends me. Like, we should be promoting each other, not, you know, this corporation and and Amazon. And you know what I mean? Those things already get enough attention. Start putting the spotlight where it deserves to be. Well, there there's a podcast I listen to regularly. And the, Brian McClanahan is a historian, and his, his mantra is think locally, act locally. And I find it to be true in, in every way possible. People have to really think and stop thinking like cosmopolitan. Stop thinking about like what other city can I move to that's so cool or already has great culture. Be the culture, you know, instead of being one of those people complains, well, there's no culture where I live or where I'm from. Create the culture, maintain the culture. That's who you are. That's the legacy you leave to your children and your grandchildren and your descendants you may never meet. You're creating a legacy for them. You don't want to live in a country where everything depends on consumption because one day that will stop. And oh, yeah. You'll be left, you'll be left in, you, you and your descendants will be left with a big pile of nothing. Yeah, even if it doesn't stop. I see no reason that, you know, for me, I mean, I have two teenage daughters, you know, um, they don't sound as, as Southern as I do. And I, I know I don't sound as Southern as, you know, say my dad or my grandparents did. And I want to preserve that. The words that we speak and the, I, I want them to know, not the history that someone who goes to Harvard went and analyzed everything I want them to know the history that I grew up knowing that my grandparents passed down and my mom and my dad I want them to feel a connection to that and and a lot of people just kind of it's like that's not important anymore and that blows my mind because you know do you not want your grandkids to have something in common with you do you not want you know these traditions that we've grown up with that have existed for hundreds of years. Do you not want your great, great grandchildren to know those and enjoy those? I do. You know, that's the only part of myself that I'm really going to get to leave behind. And so I think that we should all be 
you know, having these discussions about our history and our connection to the regulators or, you know, our speech patterns. We should be passing those on and resurrecting those words that are starting to die off. All right. I hate to, but we've got to stop there. We're out of time. Thank you so much for coming on today, Nicole, and thank all of y'all for joining us. I'll be back next Wednesday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss me. And if you're looking for more content, you can always head over to the blog at www.wherethedogwoodblooms.com. Y'all stay safe and I'll talk to you soon.